This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Our guest today is writer and essayist Christy Tate, who just published her debut memoir, Group. How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. In group, Christy shares the vulnerable, insightful, and occasionally hilarious story of her foray into group therapy. Today, we talk about her childhood, including her long struggle with disordered eating. We talk about how trauma, capital T, big T, can inform our lives as adults. And most importantly, we talk about how the process of healing and understanding ourselves better often takes a lifetime. My emotions are very big, and so it has always felt very scary, which is why people having witnesses and having a group has helped me manage what it feels like the magnitude of my despair or joy or sadness. It's it's so big, I need help carrying it. Okay, let's get to my chat with Christy Tate. Well, congratulations. I'm sure this book will be widely, widely read, which must feel both exciting and strange considering it's such a personal book. How like how have you prepared for everyone knowing about everything? <laughs> That's a really great question and thank you. I would say that what what it required of me to write the stories and the scenes in the book, I had to just tell myself no one was ever going to read this. I had that cloak of anonymity and once it became clear to me that my agent was going to sell it and it was going to go out into the world, 
I have had a process and it won't surprise anybody to know that where I've gone to process my feelings about this, including <laughs> fear and elation is straight to my group. And they've been really great. Like you can probably picture the scene for anybody who's read the book, Max, who's in my group still, his, his response to my anxiety, like I'll go into group and say, you guys, Joe from accounting is going to know what kind of sex I had in 2005. <laughs> and Max is like, well, duh, what do you think was going to happen? And so I really sort of, I get to unload it there. And I've had a lot of other memoirists reach out to me and tell me what their experiences were. And most of the time, people talk about their struggle. Other writers who've written personal accounts they say that most of your comments and the people who reach out to you are going to be loving and supportive and identifying. And nevertheless, you're probably going to focus on the few people who have troller, trollish things to say or who are not pleased with you. But the advice is to attach to people who resonate with your message and who want to connect with you. So I'm kind of holding on to that. But I'm really scared. <laughs> I have a rule, too, that if I'm going to read negative press or comments about my voice or my interviewing style, then I have to read the positive ones, too. So you can't be select if you're going if you're if you're going there, then you can't be selective. You have to try and take in the full the full scale. And for people who haven't read, essentially, you the the book is about you, your life, your eating disorder, trauma from childhood, and then unpacking it all in this group therapy session where there's no anonymity, right? And secrecy is is not only not a cardinal rule, it's sort of the enemy, right? And that silence just increases trauma. And so, did your group and Dr. Rosen, if I'm assuming names were theoretically changed, but maybe not considering how the group <laughs> functions, were they all sort of willing accomplices in this? Or how did you how do you how do you manage that when you're also sharing about other people? Yeah, that's a great question. No, all the names and identifying characteristics of the therapist and the group mates have been changed to protect their privacy. And it's been a very interesting process to look at. So the idea when I went into group was holding on to secrets is a way to hold on to shame. So if you want to participate in your own healing and let go of shame, tell names, tell stories, be specific. Doing that in a therapy group is very different than publishing a book. So walking through all the different layers of that has been really important and it's taken many years. So my group has been extremely supportive. They want to be anonymous in the book and I have worked with them. They've all read the book. I've sent them drafts. They've read the galleys. So they know what, what I have done with their identities and their place in my story. So they have supported me. That said, I do have a group member who early on, when I first mentioned, hey, I may want to write about this, guys. She said to me, I will never, ever appear in your writing. Do not write about me. And I respect that boundary. And she has reasons that are her own that I fully support. So it's not that there are no boundaries it's that they have to be negotiated in each relationship. Right. 
No, that makes complete sense. But I think that 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 overall idea is completely strange as it is when you think about, you know, I go to therapy and I think about the things that I I dump on my therapist. (laughs) And as as I think, as you call him, Dr. Rosen, he says to you, right, like, you don't need a cure, you need a witness. Yes. And yeah, that's an amazing statement. That I think is the cornerstone and the unorthodoxy that I encountered when I went to group. I understood therapy and I hadn't had much before group when I started. I understood it to be effective because it was totally private. You go into a room, there's a paid professional who's going to hold you as you march through your life, past, present, future, and that's the process. And so hearing early on that there'll be no secrets and people in other groups, the notion that there would be a group, a men's group that meets on Monday and they're talking about me and who I am and what I want and what I've done, that to me felt like a complete violation when I first came in. And now I understand it very differently, that I don't have to hold that secret. If other people are talking about me, it doesn't actually have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. That's 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 material I cannot control. And trying to control it was making me more afraid and more ashamed. So letting go has been very helpful. And so, and you entered group, right? Because you had no money, you were a struggling <laughs> law student, yeah. and you were really sick and unhappy and you had you had been in treatment for bulimia right but was that the general sort of impetus for doing group or was it this feeling of like i am just on deeply unwell right so i when i all through high school and college I was binging and purging. I actually started in seventh grade and it was a secret of course. I was full of secrets around food and when I was in college and 19 years old, somebody suggested I go to a 12-step program to address my eating disorder and I had never I didn't know that that was a thing. And so I started going to 12-step meetings and it's just like AA, it's just food instead of alcohol that was killing me and I got a sponsor and I got better and I stopped purging, but I still had a lot of food secrets, but I was very functional a lot. I'm, I'm a person who I'm have an eating, I have an eating disorder. I was very deep in it, but I was able to function. I went off to law school. I did really well, but what was nagging at me and made me feel very unwell was this sense that I'm really far apart from people. I don't know where people are. I don't know how to bring them into my life. I would watch my college friends or high school friends reach out to me and invite me to go do things. And I always said no, and I didn't know why. And I would kept finding myself like so alone. And my romantic life was disastrous. I just dated (laughs) alcoholics, addicts, the kind of guys you see on TV and you're screaming at your TV, don't date him. He wants to be alone. (laughs) Those were my boyfriends. And I just thought, I can't fix this. And I knew I was bright. I was smart enough to get to a 12-step program, but I still had these food secrets. And I was able to do well in law school, but this part of me that was always pining for deeper and better relationships had no clue. And it was starting to make me feel like I wanted to die. Mm. Mm. 
And so that's, and, and a friend told you about Rosen, right? And that's how you got involved? Yeah. So a friend of mine that I knew from a 12-step program and she took me out to dinner one night and we were talking and I noticed she looked different and she was vibrant and just seems like something had lifted in her spirit. And she mentioned offhandedly, she started with this new therapist and this friend happened to have a lot of money and was farther along in her career. And so I wasn't even going to ask because whatever she's doing, how could I possibly do that? as a law student. And I said, well, what's the deal with this therapy? And she's like, oh, it's group. And we work really hard on relationships. And I think the therapist is a genius. And she was using these big words that were very enticing. But what was really (laughs) more enticing was the change I saw in her. She had been very depressed and not non-functioning at all. She was a lot like me, but there was just a heaviness to her that I could feel it loosening and lifting. And I thought, well, maybe that could help me. And because it was group, it was cheaper, which was music to my ears. And it turned out I had to still get extra student loans to pay for my mental health treatment. And all along when I started, when I was going through the process of getting this financing lined up, I thought, well, I'll do this group thing that's cheap, this bargain basement therapy. And then when I get a job, I'll get real one-on-one therapy. And then my my life can begin as a therapy patient. Little did I know that group was where I would stay and where I remain to this day. And how much, I've never done group therapy, how much of the therapy and the healing do you think comes at the hands of other people, patients, clients, whatever? I'm not sure I guess what the designation is and how much is Rosen or, but is it just, I would imagine it must be so oddly empowering, particularly if like you, you are holding on to shameful secrets about, you know, gorging on apples every night and your sex life and the trauma from your childhood to hear people release. Was that in its own way therapeutic? Oh, a hundred percent. I think all the time about that very first day. I was probably within my first two months of treatment with Dr. Rosen. And he said out of the blue, why don't you tell the group what you ate? And this was, he was asking me to tell six people total, including himself, what I'd eaten the day before, which for a normal eater would be non-emotional. But for me, I would have rather told those people anything anything, my sex life, what I bought at Nordstrom's rack that couldn't afford, I would have rather done anything because my secrets were all around my food. And as you said, I was eating, binging 10 to 12 apples every single night. And because it was a secret, it had started to feel like I was abusing animals or I was really, really criminal and deviant. And so when I looked around the room and told So it was the chemistry, right? Dr. Rosen gives me a direction. My group mates are my witness. And I had my eyes closed when I told them. And then I, he was like, open your eyes. Dr. Rosen is guiding me. And I'm like, no, because I thought I was going to see scorn and insult and disgust. I thought that they would be as disgusted at me as I was at myself. And when I opened my eyes, I saw compassion and I saw one member was related, like nodding her head. And I 
that was transformative for me. That's a moment I can point to and say, I began to get well in that moment, which is a very powerful thing to have as an experience early on in therapy. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So, and I know you you still struggle with food, but obviously you have made progress. But so what what does that feel like? What is like, what's the the genesis? Like, what are, is it about control? Sorry, I, I don't like know as much about disordered eating as I wish that I did. But like, what, what is it for you that emerges? Oh, that's a great question. I wish more people talked about this and tried to tease it out. Actually, I would say for me that it's about control. I started eating dysfunctionally, like second grade. I remember coming Mm -hmm. home from school in my little Catholic school uniform and just eating like five pieces of bread. And my brother and sister had gone outside to play. They'd had their snack and then they stopped eating and went outside to play. And I just, I couldn't get out. I couldn't get away from the food. And understandably, then then I had a body that reflected my appetites that were, I was not obese, but I, I was larger than I wanted to be and overweight, according to the pediatrician, and miserable and body dysmorphic. I thought that I belonged in the circus. Mm. And so I think, so starting early on, there's these appetites in me that I couldn't control. In part, I think I started using food so I wouldn't have to feel, so I wouldn't have to feel lonely or scared or tense or even joy. I've binged and purged and used food long enough now that I know I'm trying to cope with feelings. And I've always thought, well, this is because I didn't want to feel angry or scared. But sometimes I've gotten good news and wanted to just tamp it down. It feels very scary to me to have those. My emotions are very big. And so it has always felt very scary, which is why people having witnesses and having a group has helped me manage what it feels like the magnitude of my despair or joy or sadness. It's, it's so big, I need help carrying it. Yeah. And do you feel like your parents just weren't able to sort of hold your emotions or help you navigate them when you were little? Was it sort of a reflective, like, calm down, Christy, or don't feel Christy? Definitely. I think that I'm from Texas and my parents are from the South. And so there's definitely some gendered feedback I felt all along, like 
girls don't get angry. And there was always, my sense was when I would be in my emotions, there would, my sense was my parents were kind of eye rolling, like, oh my God, again, yeah, you had the worst day in the world or but there were, and I was very dramatic. I was very, very, always emoting. But there were times when I felt something really deeply, like not getting a ballet solo or being in a situation where I was shunned by the popular girls at school. And those were devastating to me Mm. and my identity. And the sense I had was I was supposed to get over it and if I wallowed, any any expression of feeling felt like, oh, I'm wallowing, which is a no-no. And that also, if I stayed there, then it was my own fault. Mm-hmm. And I had the sense I was supposed to create my own happiness, my own destiny. And if I couldn't, I should just try harder. Mm. Yeah. No, I'm sure that the, many people who are listening relate to that. And I feel, I know you're a parent and I feel like the only, the only thing that I feel focused on now and maybe I'm sure there will be a name for this type of parenting is just sort of like the emotional uh, modulation particularly of my oldest who's so empathic is just Mm -hmm. like trying to be a container for him and you know just like trying to be a container trying to be a container and but yeah I can imagine sort of that I don't know if I'd call it gaslighting but but that idea that what you were feeling wasn't real Right. Or that it was somehow, there was somehow a message that whatever I was upset about, somehow it was my fault. And I'm thinking now of being 17 years old and I'd graduated from high school and I had my first boyfriend and he kept coming over to my house with hickeys that I did not give him. <laughs> he was not a faithful boyfriend. That was set up set up a little bit of a romantic dynamic for me. And I remember sitting at the dining room table bawling because my boyfriend is like cheating on me all the time. And I remember my my mom and my dad were both sort of like, well, you know, you picked him. And that is a valid what that's a valid point to make later <laughs> later <laughs> when i'm an adult after i've had a lot of therapy and it just felt like everything any misery i encountered was my own fault because i couldn't pick right you know and that's like that really i think it kept me from feeling the feelings cuz they were my fault yeah and i know i hope this isn't a spoiler but sort of the experience that you had too with your friend's dad. Yeah. And being witness to that. And I can only imagine, how old were you again when when he died? Yeah, that was about three weeks before I turned 14. Oh, my God. And then being sort of an appendage on this trip to Hawaii with a drowned father. I mean, I can't imagine. And I was... Not to make your parents feel bad, but I can't believe that no one flew there to get you. Yeah, I, when I think back about that now, there were so there were so many moments, so many things I would do differently, right? And probably my parents would do them differently. And that when I think about like, what does it mean that I'm a parent today and I go to therapy twice a week, I've been doing it forever, I'm super into it, I wrote a book about it. To me, the benefit of that is 
God forbid, if either of my children encounter a terrible tragedy or even something short of that, on my own, I might not be able to think of like, what actions do I need to take to take care of my children? And my parents didn't have that. They didn't have a lot of support. They didn't have people saying, they didn't have people holding them so that in turn they could hold me. And that's, that's what I do have. And so I, like you, I would get on the plane, we would all just march straight to therapy and we would stay as long as it took. Whereas in the generation that my parents were part of, it, the concerns were more like, well, let's not waste money. Let's, you know, and there was an idea that they, I did have a little therapy after that, but there was the, I remember after like my sixth session, they were sort of like, you are you you're wrapping it up, you good? <laughs> I thought right. I was I thought I was supposed to be. And I hadn't even start I hadn't even been honest for one second with the therapist. So I was just like, well, therapy doesn't work. Like I can just go in there and lie and then please my parents by quote graduating. So yeah. it was the setup to not get well. Right. And for those who haven't read the book yet. Essentially, you're you are on a deserted beach in Hawaii on a family vacation with another family and with the two kids and the dad went swimming and got swept out to sea or drowned. Yes. And then you went and ran for help and and then we're sort of proxy to this family's grief, having witnessed yes. something incredibly traumatic. And so as a 13 year old. I mean, I, I, it's traumatic on so many levels, but for you, when you talk about lying to your therapist, what were you afraid to reveal? I thought that I wasn't allowed to feel all the grief and the devastation that I was swirling in my body and my heart and my mind. The What I remember sitting in her couch and everything was this pastel pink and peach color. And I remember looking at her thinking, not that I was going to tell her, I was never going to tell her, but I was like, I'm not even allowed to have these feelings. It wasn't my dad. So Mm -hmm. I was able to tell myself everything I was feeling was wrong and belonged to my friend who had lost her father in this very graphic, violent, scary way when we're in Hawaii by ourselves on a beach. And I also thought that, well, I have to be strong for her, which is insane, but I thought that, and I felt like, well, my parents don't, it's upsetting my parents for me to be sad and kind of weird. (laughs) I was just like, kind of, I was getting weird as you would get when you're um, starting puberty and you've just been through a traumatic death that you witnessed. And I remember thinking, well, I've just got to pull this together and be okay. And we're just going to, I thought that the way through was to pretend that it hadn't happened. And I just shoved it down. And didn't you like pass a sign that said don't swim or something like that? And you were feeling responsible somehow that you hadn't stopped this adult man from getting in the water? Yeah. So when I first started group or when I first went to see Dr. Rosen, and this is before he put me in a group, the very, you get three individual sessions before he, you know, puts you in your group. And after the first one, I was like, it was like, I was getting up my purse and getting up to leave. I was like, Hey, by the way, when I was in 14, I was in this horrible accident in Hawaii. And he was like, Oh my God, like sit down. (laughs) Why? Like I'm just dropping that like low key. Right. And then what we discovered is that I had this, in addition to feeling like 
I wasn't allowed to have grief or confusion. And I was at a Catholic school and I was, I was so mad at God. I was like, what kind of a God puts children in this position? I just, and it was like really shameful to be at this very devout place and being like, oh, I'm giving God the finger, everyone. But so what came out in group was my sense that we were never supposed to be on that beach and I knew it. And in my memory, I see a sign next to this fence that says no trespassing on the path where we passed and went down to the beach. And we had, we, we, meaning my group and I had to do a bunch of work for me around, it wasn't my fault. I was not in charge. I was not the authority figure. And what beyond the events of the group, I have since, I don't even know if that memory, I don't know if the sign was actually there or if my memory told me it was there. Mm. So that's something that I don't, and I have not been back to Hawaii. I've, I've thought of it. I was like, oh, maybe that would be really healing to go back to that beach. And I'm just like, Mm. not ready, not ready. (laughs) Yeah. So when you think about, you know, you're a mom and you think about this is something I personally think about too, because I share a lot and I share about my kids. How do you think about that? Particularly because you've written a book that I think is likely going to be widely read. How does that come up for you? Or what do you, how do you process that and like process your own family and the fact that maybe someday they're going to read this. And how do you think about that? That's something that my husband and I have been talking about for months now. One of the things is my children are not old enough to read this. And my son is not interested, but I have a daughter who's a tween and she wants to read it. And I understand where she's coming from. She doesn't (laughs) like the idea. I mean, she doesn't know what's in there. So (laughs) so I'm like, no, but her point, which is extremely moving to me, is she says, it's not fair. Strangers are going to know things about me that she doesn't know. And it feels to her like she's missing out on an intimacy that strangers get to have with me. And I really, I really respect that. And what I have, the conversations that we're having right now, I'm having with my daughter, I'm, I'm letting her know, what I said, I can tell you what the categories are in there and why I think you shouldn't read it. And I'm like, I just don't think it's good for you to read about my sex life. At this point, you should be focused on your own development and your crushes and your, you know, your K-pop. And to have to read graphically about things I've done with my body at this stage is not good for you. Yeah. She, doesn't, she doesn't like that answer, but she accepts it. And I will say this, early on, I had an early copy sitting on my desk. And it's not like I went to great lengths to hide it. I didn't at all. And she read the first page. And the very first page of the book talks about having my having a death wish and mm. something, there's an allusion to my bulimia. And those were conversations, not the death wish, but I... I know that there's a conversation that we should be having about my disordered eating and my understanding of it, my recovery. I mean, it's not just the mess. I want to share the message. 
And that was overdue. And I think I did her a disservice by waiting till she read the first page of my book to start mm-hmm. those conversations. So I'm, I'm making a lot of mistakes along the way. I will happily report that I have not done this perfectly. In the context of disordered eating and raising a girl, I mean, as a child, my mom was for whatever, probably for good reason, because I was taking ballet classes. Uh. Just That was her focus was like that I not become... But I feel like most women go through some phase. And it seems like having gone to boarding school where there, I do think there is a lot of trauma and it's inherently kind of traumatic and amazing to live away from your family and to be sort of adultified mm. when you're a teen. It was so contagious, like just just yeah. rushed through the dorms. And how do you parent a girl through that, knowing sort of what, you know, your intimacy your intimacy with that and the prevalence of it? Well, I would say that this, that, oh my God, it's so hard. I'm so terrified. And what's hard for me is I project onto my daughter, my own discomfort, both when I was at her age and now, and that's a disservice. That means I'm not seeing her. I'm just using her as a screen for my own malaise. Mm -hmm. And what I did before she knew about my, the specifics of my eating disorder, I would, we would have a lot of conversations about bodies and appetites and certainly healthy eating. And early on, I told my husband, I was like, I will not be able to have conversations. I'm never going to be the parent that tells my kids what to eat. Like, I'm not going to do the eat your vegetable thing. I'm not saying that's a bad or a bad way to go but like for me to get involved in the the proscriptions about the kids eating I just that needs to be his Mm. he needs to he needs to carry that because I have so many poisonous messages I'm still unwinding about my own eating and food so I have really leaned on him and then once my daughter knew about my eating I would talk to her about it what I think the cornerstone of how I hope to be parenting around this is what I want is for everything to be speakable. If Mm. she feels, if she feels fancy and, and she's feeling herself, I want to hear about it. If she's feeling depressed or wishes she had legs like one of her friends, I want to hear about that too. I want her to see me as a resource, as a place to, lay those burdens down and not that she has to suck it up and live in a script for me. Right. God, it's so hard. And just having, we've all, you know, all women have lived through it. There's just nothing sort of more awkward and uncomfortable than trying to transition through tween and teen and early twenties with your, with any sense of self intact, right? Like it's sort of this, it is a grind. And I know, you know, I when I when I think back on my past relationships, many of them were wonderful. Many of them were totally fucked up. <laughs> um, but it, they all feel sort of like each one a correction of yes, something that came before, course correction. And I know you just really really as you mentioned did not choose wisely. But do you feel like and I also think that there's this mythology that we feed ourselves and our our kids about sort of dating and relationships and that somehow like by dating a lot of people or being in a lot of relationships, then you're inherently going to be just better at 
uh-huh. marriage, which I think is such a lie. But being married now, like, how do you how do you manage your relationship? Like, did you really just arrive at sort of someone who could hold you and all of your stuff? Or do you guys get therapy? Or like, how do you how do you manage? How do you manage your relationship? Yeah, what what I what I see in myself is I see a lot of my old habits or sort of they there's always for me the pull to withhold my feelings like that's that was an early an early lesson in group was oh you're mad why don't you show the group look at who you're look at you're mad at you're mad at Carlos look at Carlos tell him you're mad at him and that was not something I'd ever done in my entire life all I knew to do with anger was swallow it withdraw and run away Mm. and so in my marriage I have good habits, but the impulse is still there to be huffy puffy or to kind of like mm, very passive aggressively sigh when I'm unloading the dishwasher yet again. And those are the quotidian sort of bad habits that my working group continues to help me override and find a better way. But there's also deeper struggles. There's struggles in my marriage about who gets to have power, you know, who gets to have a say, whose schedule is more important, whose ambitions. And one thing when people talk about marriages and they, they don't talk about the super hard, this is the stuff that gets in my guts. Like if push comes to shove, who's going to step off the call and help the kids do remote schooling. And we constantly have to negotiate that. And I constantly, what I found in my marriage is something I didn't know about myself until I got into a functional relationship. But what I've discovered is I kind of like to play the martyr. I kind of want to like suck it up, do more. My perception is right. I do more. And then I can just be like, yeah, I'm super tired because I did X, Y, Z, P, D, Q. Instead of having an honest, mature negotiation at the outset, like, how about it? How about I do A and B? And then you can do C and D. Those conversations are still so hard for me. And I still have to go to group and say, I'm super pissed at my husband because of X, Y, Z. And they always just get on my case. Like, well, did you ask? Did you say what you wanted? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I didn't. Why doesn't he know? (laughs) <laughs> Does your husband is he like group and all of our baggage aired in front of you know he really should be I don't know why he's not he's very he's just so solid in himself and he's so amused and such a great cheerleader for this whole project and from the very first day you know I want to say it was like before we even slept together I was like look I go to group at the time, I was going three times a week, and I tell them everything. And I'm like, they're going to know what your penis looks like and <laughs> what kind of sex we have. And he just didn't flinch. He just – he that that didn't rattle him at all. And I, I still marvel at that. So sometimes there are there are moments where it's like I'll say – I'll come out of a group session, and I'll be like, so – my group suggested that we hire someone to, you know, paint the living room or something, you know, some cockamamie thing that seems like it shouldn't come out of your group therapy. And he'll kind of roll his eyes like, why can't we do it ourselves? Or, you know, sometimes there's the way the group intrudes 
and Dr. Mm-hmm. Rosen as well in our marriage. And he's sort of like, he takes it good heartedly, but I'm sure it must be so annoying because he's in a relationship with me and the six people in my group and Dr. Rosen. And we're sort of, it was a package deal and he just accepted it from the beginning, which is unbelievable. <laughs> well, I love marriage therapy. And so I think, I think all relationships and all in all realms of life require sort of consistent work and evolution. Otherwise, as you mentioned, it's just too hard for the resentments to pool. And similarly, it's like we see a therapist who, and he does it sort of boot camp style occasionally, which is perfect Mm. for us. So it's not this consistency, but he's always sort of like, we get going like on the nitpicky martyry shit. And he's like, I don't care. Like, stop. (laughs) Like you guys are so boring. And yeah, just hearing that sometimes is really, really actually helpful because you get so worked up, you know. Yes. I'm happy to hear that my issues are run of the mill, negotiating space, time, money, sex. Like that's some real, you know, quotidian struggles that everybody has. And just like I have them too. Totally. So you, as you, when you think about sort of the context of therapy and, and group, I don't, and, and clearly Rosen's different, right? But for people who are listening who have never contemplated that type of therapy, well, A, it's really, it's more affordable, right? Yeah. yeah. But who do you think is sort of, do you think everyone is a good candidate for a group type of therapy? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not a therapist. And what, what I've observed is who it works for is for people who are really looking to work on relationships and it does I can't imagine that it's I actually don't think it's for everybody I have friends who have you know come to me and said well can you give me the name of your therapist and I'll just describe a little bit about group and they're coming from a place of extreme fragility or someone who's been through a very recent trauma I'm thinking of a friend who had been through a very recent sexual assault and Mm. the prospect of processing that which was still so fresh like almost still in shock I just I can't I certainly can give her Dr. Rosen's number and also other therapists because that's a lot to do some people need the sanctuary and the the sanctity of a one-on-one relationship because they're very very fragile yeah and so I think that who I've seen group really work for is people who are interested in connecting with others and that the prospect of having peers through the therapeutic process is somehow vivifying or at least not terrifying to the point of paralysis. Right. No, that makes sense. And I think that there's a certain, you mentioned fragility, but there's a certain accountability that I'm sure it also demands, right? And <laughs> you have, you know, a group of peers, friends, confidants, whatever they are, you know, sort of making you, holding you, your toes to the fire to some extent. Certainly. And one of the skills, I didn't, I went to group because I was 
very, very lonely. And when I looked into my future, I thought I'm only going to have billable hours and some partnership job at some law firm. And that prospect made me want to die. And I didn't know how to have friends or close people and certainly no romantic relationships. And Dr. Rosen's pitch was very compelling. He said, if you want to work on relationships, group is a place to do six at one time. And you will be observed and you will see everything you do in relationships will be visible and commented on. And that was that made a lot of sense to me. One thing that's super hard is you have to go into therapy willing to throw your hat in the ring. Nobody in my group was ever going to say, Christy, the floor is yours. You have to take the floor every single time. And so you can't be lazy if you really want to get well, you have to be willing to interrupt people or spar or take your spot in the center to get the help you need because that the onus is on you. So you kind of have to take this ownership of the process in a way you don't an individual because it's just you. There's no competition. Right. No, totally. One of the other things that I, I thought was really honest and always seems essential is that you've been you've been doing this for many years, right? That the process of, I think even just regardless of what what baggage you carry, but just the process of staying engaged with life requires sort of this consistency to self and the healing process is never really done, which I know is dissatisfying to so many people. <laughs> but but it's very honest, you know, that this is this is theoretically something you'll participate in? Like, can you ever imagine a time when you wouldn't, when you would be done? I, you know, I've thought about that a lot. I thought, okay, sometimes I'll go into group. I remember a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, we need a plan. Dr. Rosen's getting up in years. When he dies, what are we all going to do? And <laughs> so we had this like bizarre conversation about where we would all go for treatment. And I really do. I see myself as someone who can always be a better person if she has group support. And so I don't imagine not, you know, my plan is to stick with Dr. Rose until he retires or expires and then <laughs> find another group because I just believe that it brings that much to my life that being without it sounds like, it sounds like I would just be bereft. I would be, the legs would kick out, kicked out from under me. So Christy, when you think about sort of the life that you've been processing as you go, like, do you, do you ever feel like your issues will be resolved or is this just sort of a lifelong process? For me, I believe that this is, this is a lifelong process. And by this, I mean healing, deepening my capacity for intimacy and vulnerability. That's not work I ever imagined being done with. And one of the things I feel like gets sort of lost in conversations about healing or journeys to recovery, be it from trauma or addiction or any other kind of maladaptive behavior is it really just, it takes a long time. There's a lot of mess. There's a lot. I mean, my story alone shows I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I made a lot of bad choices, even when I quote, should have known better and I was in recovery and I was in therapy and had been for a couple of years and still I made decisions that were counter to my vision and counter to my integrity and my safety and I really just feel like the more people tell true stories about the jagged line of recovery that it's not just a straight arrow shooting upward 
to some kind of nirvana, I feel like we all can sort of have better understandings of what healing could look like and what the road is actually like. Yeah, no, I agree. It's never, it's never resolved in a session. It's never resolved in a week. Exactly. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your book. It is a beautiful book and really fun to read. There's nothing more thrilling in a way than maybe I'm a weirdo, but I don't think so. I feel like I'm there's a collective response to reading about other people's therapy that's very compelling. So I hope it's really widely read. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Christy Tate. For more from Christy, pick up a copy of her stunning book, Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.